Welcome to Get Real, talking mental health and disability. I'm Emily Webb. I'm joined by Irma365 CEO, Karenza Louis-Smith, who will be co-hosting this episode. Hi, Emily. Before we start this conversation, we acknowledge and thank people with lived experience who contribute to Get Real podcast and those who love, support and care for them. We recognise their strength, courage and unique perspective as a vital contribution so that we can learn, grow and achieve better outcomes together. And we want to let listeners know that in this episode, we will have some discussion about childhood sexual abuse and trauma. So please do keep this in mind and take care of yourselves when deciding to listen to this content. And if you have been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Our guest for this episode is Anders Villani, a Melbourne-based poet, writer, teacher and PhD candidate. Anders is also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and lives with post-traumatic stress disorder. His new collection of poetry is called Totality. In Anders' own words, this collection is a creative inquiry into the childhood sexual abuse he experienced and its ramifications for his adult life. For his PhD research, Anders is exploring how poetry represents personal trauma, in particular, the tension that exists for artists between the tellable and untellable aspects of traumatic experience. And Carenza and I will be asking Anders more about this during our conversation. Anders, welcome to Get Real and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Emily. Hi, Carenza. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Anders. Thank you so much for joining us. And Emily and I have wanted to do an episode for this podcast about poetry as a way to share lived experience about mental health and trauma. So we're really honoured to have you join us as a guest here today on Get Real. I did want to ask you first up really about your lived experience, because this will give us, I guess, the context for your creative work, your PhD research and living with trauma, which we'll also talk about in today's podcast. Now, as you say, you live with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as a consequence of child sexual abuse. Now, it's a really sensitive topic to discuss, and we absolutely know that sexual abuse of children and young people is shrouded in secrecy. It takes years, decades for survivors to disclose and get support, and we know that some people never do. So in the work that we do at Irma, we, we often see the mental health impacts of this on some of the people that we support. So as much as you're comfortable, can you tell us a little bit about your, your lived experience? Sure. So the abuse took place between the ages of five and 13. As you say, it was shrouded in secrecy and... I guess after it ended, I had what might once have been called a kind of latency period between 13 and 19 or so, where I almost never thought about it. Um, it sort of became a secret even to myself. And it wasn't until I began uh, having adult intimate relationships that I started to notice a kind of tendency that I had to reach a certain level of closeness with people and then find this violent sort of urge to escape this withdrawing from physical touch this sense of myself as a very cold very unfeeling 
kind of dispassionate person that didn't align with how I felt about myself at the at the deepest level, but I began thinking about myself as this kind of calculated operator in the world who was not able to express or receive genuine love. Around that time, I also began writing in earnest uh, fiction and poems. And when I look back at those works now, I, I realize that they they kind of glancingly dealt with um, some of these issues. It was never autobiographical. It was always kind of refracted through fictional characters and there were always a lot of details changed and things like that. But I had sort of begun the inquiry into what happened and how it affected me and my sense of self that kind of continues to this day. But I guess another aspect of sort of the consequences of the abuse that might be worth mentioning is this sort of discord that I've felt uh, between my achievements in the world and been lucky enough to have quite a number of opportunities arise as a result of my writing scholarships and grants and publications and so on. And with those achievements came this kind of constant doubt or second guessing of the deservedness of those achievements. It never felt like there was an ability to feel proud or accomplished it was always a feeling that at some point, some kind of imminent point, I was going to be exposed for being worthless. And it's taken me a long time to really understand just how deep that sense of worthlessness and, and doubt in myself runs. And it's something that I you know, continue to, to deal with to this day. When I was 27, so this is getting up to 15 years after the abuse ended, I entered therapy for the first time. This was at the urging of my partner at the time, who's still my partner, somebody who I was about to lose. We've been together for a year, year and a half maybe, and the pattern was asserting itself again. I was withdrawing. I couldn't be touched by her. I was repulsed by my own body and totally questioning the authenticity of all my actions and thoughts. And I knew that it was a kind of make or break moment where I either let her go despite how deeply I loved her or I let others in to try to help me after a very, very long period of sort of going it alone and believing that I could cope alone. And it was entering therapy that uh, really started to open, open my eyes as to the kind of the depths of, of influence that the abuse had had over every facet of the way I thought about myself in the world. It was also, I guess, the beginning of the path towards a kind of healing, you know, that, that awareness of what I was faced with, I guess, was the beginning of an attempt to, you know, to get true control over it, which continues to this day. It was also an opportunity for me to explore trauma at the level of research and take a more kind of direct approach in my own writing into what happened, which is sort of the, the origins of my decision to go into PhD study and 
and the book that we'll discuss a little later. Thank you for sharing that, Anders. And poetry, I'm really interested to know the importance of that form of writing for you. It's In some ways, it's, a, it's sort of a classic example of the old Wordsworth definition of poetry as the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. It really was that for me. And I think that as I got a little older and began writing poetry in more earnest, the solitude and the kind of capacity to plumb the depths of myself that it offered became very significant. It offered a a kind of refuge. It offered a a space for self-inquiry that I didn't have in any other in any other form. I think it also offered a space where I could say a lot without necessarily explicitly saying it. So given that I ha- was trying to kind of find my way around these experiences that, you know, for different reasons had to be kept secret, poetry was this kind of form that offered me this maneuverability around them so that I could use it as an outlet, but also keep a lot inside as well or keep a lot veiled. So, Anders, how did you discover you had post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD? So, we've spoken to lots of people, I guess, on the Get Real podcast who live with PTSD. And often it takes a lot of time, I think, to diagnose. And each person's path to discovery is quite different. What did it look like for you? And when you had that diagnosis, what did that mean for you? If you had told me two, even a year ago, two years, one year ago, that I had PTSD, I would have fought you on that. I was so resistant for a long time to acknowledging that PTSD was was a reality for me. And I think that in large part, that resistance had to do with this unwillingness to kind of pathologize myself, to see myself as unwell or a victim. I'd spent such a long time on the move away from what happened you know, whether that's geographically or in my career or I'd been moving and moving and I'd never settled into an understanding that I was suffering from something that I needed help for. So it wasn't until I kind of began therapy and PTSD began to be mentioned as something that, you know, was a feature in my life and my experience that I even started to entertain the prospect that that was accurate. But even, even still, I avoided accepting it for a long time. I minimized, I kind of relativized. There was a lot of, a lot of attempts to dismiss what I went through as not as bad as a lot of what other people go through. And therefore, I couldn't think of myself as a victim and victim blaming as well in the sense that, you know, I've often felt complicit in what happened and um, in some ways sort of depraved that I allowed it to happen. And for, for me, PTS, PTSD or an acceptance of the PTSD label represents in some ways a kind of courageous leap because it, it is about saying what I went through was serious and it matters and I deserve to have a chance at recovery. Poetry is deeply personal and we've heard you talk about it just before and your new collection, Totality, is about your lived experience and 
you describe it as a creative inquiry into the the abuse that you experienced and its ramifications for your adult life. Can you talk, I guess, about what you're particularly trying to explore in this collection? Because it's very intriguing and I think important work that you're doing. Sure. So the word totality is a kind of double entendre. On the one hand, of course, it sort of implies the the whole of my experience. But on the other hand, it is the word for a total solar eclipse. So the moment when a moon covers the sun is called the totality in the cycle of solar eclipses. And I mention that because what's fascinated me about the kind of eclipse cycle is that when the two bodies are in full alignment, you've got this total obscuration, this total darkness. And I began thinking about that as a kind of metaphor for the sort of alignment that occurred in childhood, this abusive alignment that also was characterized by this darkness, this this kind of predation. And I began researching ancient eclipse mythology and kind of cosmology and found that a lot of ancient civilizations regarded eclipses with a lot of foreboding and they often had sort of invented uh, creatures that you know represented the moon but uh, in it as a, a kind of hunter of the sun whether it was a, a werewolf or a giant frog in a Vietnamese story or there are indigenous myths that involve men chasing the kind of woman's son and um and finally kind of violating them so i say this because on the one hand eclipse mythology and references are kind of pepper the book and actually structure the book the sections are are titled for cycles of the eclipse but also that if i really think about what this collection is at the deepest level it's a collection that studies my capacity to align with other beings in relation and this original alignment that had carried this kind of dark predatory aspect and my struggle to engage in relationships thereafter that were light and positive and loving and i think that at at the heart of of that is maybe this sense of aligning with the self this willingness to forgive the child this willingness to express self-love and I hope that the book overall is kind of an expression or a testament to my capacity to forgive and to love myself. Talking about um, the book, would you share one of your poems with us and tell us a bit more about it? I'd love to. I'll read one called The Last Poem and there's an epigraph here by the French writer and philosopher Maurice Blanchot. The first liberty is the liberty to say everything. The last poem. Midnight, courtyard, lamp lit, more day than the day. She sits opposite him. Houndstooth brickwork lends this, the air, the lounge of high fashion. Everything's in the open that should be. Those from whom parts had to be veiled sleep in warmth. The few who had to be devastated 
have found Disclosure's silhouette so graceful it's been nothing. A Felix Culper. No torched lives, no vestibule, no holding pattern. Where aggression has been pleaded for, the throat has ennobled it. The Monterey pine was never pickaxed, never wept its spearmint. Under the blood moon, deer shadows streak an open field parallel to train tracks behind her. Again, the blood moon brings the cyclops whose eye seeks the spear, but he doesn't ask why again. Some choices aren't forgivable. Those who should know this do now and have borne it well better than dreamt. Soft power has triumphed. Lamplight raises blemish from their skin, siliconizes it, dulls it. Laughter has no form to lodge. Their gazes meet. I chose that one even though it's quite dense because you have this very simple premise of a man and a woman across from one another, looking at one another. And sort of within that gaze, you have this, in some ways, this dream scenario where the trauma, the attempt to recover from the trauma has reached this kind of idyllic closure where everyone sort of has been informed, all the parties have kind of come to an understanding and there's this harmonious sort of conclusion to the saga and there's a kind of a strange latin phrase in there felix culpa which means fortuitous fault or happy fault so this kind of bad thing that happens that turns into actually a, a, a positive right and so that poem for me represents this this kind of impossible ideal that i think a lot of trauma survivors or abuse survivors have as one kind of facet of the way they approach their experiences, this desire to have it all just worked out and perfect so that they can have healthy, safe relationships again. And the reason why that last poem is not the last poem in the collection is <laughs> because it's it doesn't quite work that way. But it is still this ideal that has a very powerful sway, this feeling that total recovery and total sort of integration is possible. Very therapeutic, isn't it, to be able to imagine that and see that? It is. It is. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you for, for doing that. When we were chatting on email prior to this interview, you wrote to me that a quote from Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery, was at the heart of your PhD research, which is focused on how poetry represents trauma. This quote is the conflict between the will to deny horrible events and the will to proclaim them aloud is a central dialectic of personal trauma. Can you explain this quote a bit more for us and also a bit about this book, Trauma and Recovery, for listeners who may not be familiar with it? Sure. The first thing I'll say about that quote is that when I read it for the first time, a lightning bolt went through me because it seemed to capture something that I had long felt to be the case without really knowing why. And it also seemed to capture something not just about my own experiences, but my own use of poetry 
to inquire into those experiences. And one sort of dimension of this, this idea, this tension between or tension in language that trauma survivors often experience between this very powerful desire to talk about what happened, which of course is kind of at the, at the root of most of our modalities of treatment. You know, you have to share and articulate and this almost equally powerful and sort of coexistent desire to suppress what happened, not talk about it, conceal it. If you go back to kind of earlier models of, of understanding of trauma, I'm thinking Freudian sort of psychoanalytic models, they tend to kind of prioritize the, the unconscious nature of traumatic experience. You, you know, something happens to you that is so shocking that you, it kind of bypasses conscious awareness uh, when it happens and then it, it comes back at you later in the form of flashbacks and dreams and triggers and so on. And while I still think that there's, there's sort of a place for thinking about that kind of that unremembered or unconscious aspect of trauma and, and maybe its relationship with this will to not talk about it, I think what's much more interesting to me and much more true to my own experience is the kind of social and contextual factors that contribute to this tension between talking about it and not talking about it. You know, maybe it's experience that was always sort of defined by having to be kept secret. Do you have people that you feel safe talking about these experiences to? Would you feel listened to? Are there still people in your life that you're trying to protect or that you're afraid of? You know, there are all these reasons why people might not talk about trauma. And of course, the most obvious one being that it's still just too painful and still really isn't offering up any kind of clear language for you um, to talk about it. So to me, that tension between the will to deny horrible events and the will to proclaim them aloud feels so true to my own experience and the efforts that I've gone to on both of those fronts. And it also felt really important to a kind of way that poetry functions. And maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Just quickly on the book, it's, it was published in the early 90s by an American psychiatrist. It was a really seminal book because it sort of made the argument, which is contentious, but I think there's a lot about it that feels true, that you could find commonalities in the experiences of victims of kind of horrific external traumas like war trauma or terrorism or something like that and the more private sort of domestic traumas like rape or incest or sexual abuse and that you know by by kind of focusing on the commonalities there you could kind of um maybe begin to sketch uh, a clearer way to, you know, to treat those, to treat those symptoms. Another thing that she mentions in the book that I think is really relevant is that in order to sort of legitimize this, this inquiry into trauma, this, um, this effort to better understand it and better deal with it, you need the kind of backing of a, of a political movement or a political interest in trauma. So she kind of points to a few moments historically where that's the case, like, after the world wars, after the Vietnam War, obviously, when, when PTSD starts to kind of emerge as a, as a psychiatric condition. And then 
through the sort of 70s and 80s and this reckoning in the in the Western world with domestic violence. And I think we kind of find ourselves in another one of those moments now. And, you know, as evidence, you only have to look at the, the explosion of books, creative and sort of nonfiction about traumatic experience. Anders, you're doing a PhD, which is just a massive, massive undertaking of work. And I think the research and creative work that you're doing, it sounds really important to contributing to the understanding of trauma, but also that sharing of lived experience as well and creativity and mental health. Tell us a bit about your topic. You know, what are you researching? What is it that you're looking to try and explore? Yeah, so I'm a poet, first and foremost. And so despite the very wide kind of interdisciplinary reading that I'm doing, which I'll talk about in a, in a second, I think it's important to stress that I'm not an expert on uh, anything beyond, uh, you know, how poetry works. And I'm not even an expert on that either. But, and so at the, you know, at the root of the, of the thesis is poetry analysis. It's looking at structure and form and so on. But if we kind of get away from that for a moment, in order for me to make the arguments that I'm trying to make about how poetry represents trauma on one dimension of how it does, I've needed to cover a lot of other sort of ground in my research. And that includes psychoanalysis, psychology, a lot of trauma studies in the humanities. So the history of trauma as a concept, the history of its use as a concept in understanding literature and writing and art in general, trying to represent atrocity, linguistics, philosophy, literary theory. So there's a very broad sort of array of reading that I'm attempting to kind of synthesize, but the way I'm anchoring it is to make sure that, you know, I don't pretend to be a psychologist, I don't pretend to be a sociologist, you know, I'm I'm using these other disciplines to inform what is at heart a, a work of a study of poetry and how it works. But my central argument is actually quite a simple one. And it relates back to the question Emily asked before about Judith Herman. So we kind of all know that poetry is used to describe or uh, express intense feelings or, you know, experiences that don't seem to be expressible in ordinary prose. And then that kind of begs the question of, well, why is that? And that's an incredibly complex question. And people have been arguing about that for a long time. But you know, my kind of contribution to that answer relates directly to this tension between the will to deny and will to proclaim trauma. And what I'm arguing is that poetry itself operates in quite a similar way. You have this, what I'm calling the interplay of disclosure and concealment in poetry. So, you know, there are a lot of features of poetry like metaphor and symbolism and, you know, a, a focus on rhythm and sound patterns, all these things that seem to go move away from saying things directly making clear statements about the world. And those are all super important features of poetry. But 
they wouldn't be important without there being this other side to poetry, this ability to actually make very direct, very literal statements and poetry's capacity to kind of rove between the implicit and explicit and, you know, um, sort of not be beholden to one side of that sort of coin or the other. And I think what I found in looking at some poets that represent personal trauma, looking for this dialectic that Judith Herman mentions of this will to deny and will to proclaim trauma, looking at it from the perspective of the poetics, you can see how this function of poetry of being able to say very obvious things and then say things that are very veiled and kind of move between the two can actually say something quite powerful about how it actually feels to try to talk about trauma, capturing what, you know, the academics might call the phenomenology of it, how it actually feels for the individual at the level of experience to try to navigate those attempts to, to talk about what happened. And I think what you're describing is very powerful, that ability to find a way to somehow put words to something that has no words. It sounds like a huge piece of work and, you know, a phenomenal piece of research, but also probably quite therapeutic and healing as well. And, and I'm interested, what's been helpful for you on this journey that you're on, you know, the trauma, the PTSD diagnosis, having to, I suppose, make those choices. Do I accept it, own it, you know, step into that space, which, as you said, your partner challenged you. Do you, do you step into that, all those things that are frightening and allow that intimacy? What's been helpful? Because it sounds like it's been a, a really powerful journey for you. Yeah, well, I mean, at the core of that is uh, you know, a regular regular therapist that I see. And the benefits of that have been profound, although they're very cumulative and sort of hard won. And you can feel that you're not making progress at times. And then all of a sudden you realize that, you know, that, that period that felt like you weren't making progress, in fact, you were sort of subconsciously starting to change certain sort of quite fixed assumptions that you held about yourself and, and so on. So outside of that, I exercise a lot. I run four or five times a week and long runs are incredibly therapeutic for me. It's a time to really escape that kind of conscious you know, anxiety or stress that, that, that might and you know, that often sort of opens up this possibility for traumatic thoughts to come in, that kind of flow state. Obviously, writing has really been so crucial to me as a, as a therapeutic tool, and it, it really is a, as a tool for survival. It gave me a sense of control where no other control existed, and it also gave me a place to lend my experience as a sense of significance and also a place where I could try to reshape or reclaim some of those experiences. So I think, you know, between writing and exercise and therapy and then, of course, just a real willingness to spend time out in the world with other people, not necessarily to talk about what happened, but just to avoid this sort of instinct to withdraw which is often there to really to really fight that where necessary. Not you know not to not to say there's not a place for 
solitude at times, but to really open out towards the world and, and, and want to be part of it. I think rather than rather than shrinking back and recoiling at it, I think that's been crucial for me as well. But it's a it's a daily battle and I have good days and bad days, but on, on the whole, you know, I'm so grateful for the life that I have and the people around me. And um, when I come back to that gratitude, it gives me sort of strength to keep going. How has your understanding of what self-care has changed over the years in particular, the things you describe now that you do for yourself are, I guess, what we would call quite healthy strategies, but hey, we know that we employ unhealthy strategies as a coping mechanism. So how has your understanding of what self-care really is changed, I guess, is the question I'm asking. That's a great question. And it's a question that actually strikes me as quite profound in my own life, particularly over the last couple of years, because I wouldn't have described it as such uh, until recently. But if I think back to most of my 20s, self-care was really characterized by a kind of avoidance or a desire to escape. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of partying, a lot of, a lot of drug use, a lot of, anonymous sort of interactions with people, a lot of anonymous sexual interactions that um, gave me a sense of being liberated from the person that I wanted to escape. But of course, you know, compounded that sense of loneliness and isolation and inability to truly connect. So I've kind of begun to feel that self-care is actually an expression of self-love that I do in fact have for myself. So, Antos, as we wrap up this interview, I have no doubt that there'll be people listening on this podcast who have experienced trauma, whether it's similar trauma to you or a different trauma. And some of those people would have found ways to talk about it and express that trauma and and others won't have. What advice or thoughts can you share with people listening today who, who might find themselves in the position where they've not found a way to... As I said, I think I used the words before, find words when there are no words to talk about some of those things. And you've done that in an incredible way through poetry. Yeah, what advice might you give or thoughts might you share? I think the first piece of advice I would give would be just to stress that you're never alone. Even when you think that nobody could possibly understand what you've gone through, or, you know, offer any kind of assistance. In some ways, that's a trauma talking. And not only are you not alone, but you are always deserving of support and compassion. And this cycle of self-blame that, you know, I and uh, I'm sure a lot of others find themselves in needs to be broken in order to kind of see the path towards recovery. So just in very generic terms, I would sort of give that advice to someone who's, who's gone through that process. And then the other suggestion, I suppose, would be to, to read widely, to, to find other people, other voices who have been through things that maybe are similar to the things that you've been through or capture some of the kind of suffering that you've experienced and I guess gain a sense of 
commonality or community. Podcasts like Get Real or, you know, another great resource for that just to develop a real sense of being part of a collective as opposed to suffering in isolation. And I think once there's that feeling that you're you're not alien, that you are actually part of, you know, the kind of human family, that there's a kind of a possibility then for speech and articulating and um, beginning that process of of integrating what happened into a broader story because you're not simply those experiences. You're a much, much richer story than than just those. That's very powerful advice, I think, and that sense of you you aren't alone um, is such an important message. Thank you so much, Anders, you know, for joining us today and sharing your, your story, story, your lived experience with us and obviously the incredible work that you're doing with your PhD and, and the book as well, which is very exciting. It's such an honour, truly, to have an opportunity to, to share these experiences. I, I always sort of felt that one of the final steps in the process of recovery for me, although I've still got a long way to go, is to take what I've experienced and try to convert it into knowledge that may assist others. So um, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Thanks again, Anders. Yeah, it's been an incredible conversation. For our listeners, if you've been affected by anything discussed in this episode you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. There's also 13 Yarn on 13 92 76, which is a 24-7 crisis support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. There will be details of these and other support services in the show notes for this episode. Anders' poetry collection, Totality, is published by Recent Work Press, and you can find out more about Anders at his website, andersvillani.com. Details will also be in the show notes for this episode. I'm Emily Webb and you've been listening to Get Real, Talking Mental Health and Disability. Join us next time on Get Real for more conversations about mental health. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love you to share Get Real with your friends and networks and leave a review. It helps more people find us. Until next time, stay safe, stay well and look after yourself.